Everyone's got the same expectations of work and wishes of work. You know, people want clear boundaries between work and home. People want there to be safe spaces to have conversations. People, you know, feel the same sorts of pressures. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. On Halloween, industry well-being charity NABS released its all-ears consultation, and fittingly, there were some spine-chilling findings. The report found that more than one-third of industry professionals feel unable to discuss mental wellness in the workplace, that stress and burnout are normalized, and that those with a minority ethnic background are significantly less likely than those with a white ethnic background to see a future for themselves in media. In a prior episode of the podcast, I discussed the report alongside one of our columnists, Nicola Kemp, and our editor-in-chief, Omar Oaks. Do please give that episode a listen, as Nikki in particular really honed in on the importance of working out proper, flexible, hybrid working policies for people's mental health within the industry. She also mentioned the say-do gap between mental wellness policies that have been created in recent years and the actual implementation of those policies. That's a subject I will be sure to touch on again today. That's because we wanted to dig a little deeper on this subject. At our events, mental wellness concerns, as well as worries over a lack of equity granted for diverse members of staff, have regularly come to the forefront, especially in conversations with future leaders within the industry. So here with me today to not just talk in further depth about the report, but about tangible steps agencies and industry leaders can take to better the working lives of their staff, I am very grateful to be joined by NAV CEO Sue Todd, as well as Assembly Managing Partner James Appleby. James also works to lead NAB's Fast Forward training program, which helps up-and-comers understand best practices about the pitching process, which I will be sure to ask about. So welcome to you both, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Sue, you've been CEO of NABS for just under two years now at this point, is that correct? Uh, What, if anything, have you seen change during that time period? Um, well, I think what's been coming for a few years and that um, I've, I've managed to come in at the sort of um, pivotal point around is the fact that demand for NAB services since 2019, so since really COVID and then post-COVID, have gone up by 66%. And that the number one reason why people now contact NABs is emotional support. So um, I think that, you know, the numbers going up and the shape of the demand changing, the team were already looking to reflect and evolve services to accommodate. And we're talking about, you know, our core purpose being advancing mental wellness. But I suppose me coming in um, and asking for a fresh look and a consultation with the industry, which is, you know, you've referred to and talked about in the last podcast, has allowed us to sort of quantify and understand the whys so that we can sense check whether the path we're on in terms of our services is the correct one, Mm. whether we need to pivot to bring anything else to the fore, and what we need to advocate for um, in the industry, because obviously NABS, NABS doesn't own this objective alone. Lots and lots of businesses and other trade bodies from, you know, Josh at the IPA and the AA and the all-in um, surveys also are looking to support and advance. So, you know, I guess it's just a moment in time where there is tremendous change happening around us in terms of workplace culture. Mm. Uh, advertising, media, marketing, I think, are always at the forefront of social, cultural and technological advances. We tend to go first on things um, and I think that, you know, we're in the eye of the storm, so to speak, in terms of we've identified some of the issues and we've began to make some advances. But I guess at the core of what this survey tells us is we need to move a bit faster or acknowledge the speed and difficulty with some of the things we're grappling with. Mm, yeah, talent retention has been uh, an issue that's been highlighted a lot recently. And you mentioned Josh Krzyzewski, um, who's the IPA president, is making that a big point of, of his tenure um, it, it, to address those concerns, retention, but also then recruitment. 
we did talk about the report last week, but what were some of those key takeaways? What was the sense check that you got from this consultation in your own words, you know, briefly, I suppose? What are you most fo- worried about or focused on? Uh, well, I suppose there's three that have most stuck in my mind, I think, of the fine key findings. The first one is one for NABs, which is kind of pleasing and an opportunity because when we asked people what they needed in terms of support to advance their mental wellness, whether they were coming from a position of just prevention or feeling like they were in a bit more of a crisis, 70% of the things that people identified as being helpful, NABs already has. Mm. So so that, that's pleasing in some regard that we already have some services that are useful. But we've also found out that only about a third of people knew about NABs well enough to know that those services were already here. So there's a gap between, um, in terms of visibility awareness of NABs, so that's really important that we fill that to let people know that some of the things they want are already here. So that was, I kind of had a suspicion that was true, but that's really validated the gap between what people need, what we've got, and what we need to shout more loudly about that are already here. Uh, so that was one. The second thing was, although I had a real sense that um, you know managers are, are obviously critical to creating environments and cultures that are both inclusive and supportive of any issues around mental wellness, I think what this survey has done is completely validated on top of data I'd seen from the whole country, actually. There was a piece in The Guardian a week or so ago that said 82% of managers are accidental, that's what they call them, (laughs) which comes from a Chartered Management Institute survey. And um, we found that actually, you know, fundamentally there was people going into those first management layers uh, and levels without very much support at all. Um, And our senses from the sort of qualitative analysis that, you know, the demands on those early managers are greater than ever your competence um, is higher than, you know, needed higher than it even was when I, 20 years ago, got my first management job, and that we are possibly doing less than we should be to intentionally support them with great training about their responsibility, not just around creating environments for mental wellness, but just cultures that, you know, help people thrive because they're under enormous pressure and they need our help. Mm-hmm. James, I mean, uh, you're at Assembly. Do any of those findings ring true for you, either from personal experience or from people that you've spoken with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the accidental managers part's really interesting. I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to the fact that when you give given your first managerial job and someone comes to you with an actual problem, you think, I'm not I'm not ready for this. I'm not prepared mm-hmm. for this. No one actually talked about this. I maybe just wanted some more money. I wanted a bit more status. I wanted to say I was the next level up. And then all of a sudden it comes with this whole plethora of responsibilities. Um, and I think the pandemic, which I'm sure will come up a few times today, has really intensified that challenge because even though there's lots of people wanting to come back into town and do some of the fun stuff, I think there is a bit of a resistance generally to come back to five days a week. Then people seem to agree five days, why why should we go back to the old ways? Um, But we're losing a lot of that organic, um, osmotic, if you like, way of learning how you talk to people, how you deal with challenges, how you, you know, nip all that stuff in the bud. Um, how you model good behaviour for people on your team and all those sorts of things. So I think it's definitely a theme speaking to other managers and other uh, kind of, you know, team leaders and friends of mine around around the industry and around the business. It's definitely something that is is a real challenge, but it, it's almost a bit of an invisible one because no one wants to raise their hand to be the person to say, hang on a minute, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I feel comfortable doing this or I'm not sure I know, know what I'm doing. People just I kind of think there's a bit of a tendency to stay quiet about it and run away. Mm. There's possibly even a bit of a divide generationally where if you you know if you were just getting going as a manager you maybe three or four five six even years in and then you had a pandemic and now you're kind of like maybe closer to a decade in 
but you didn't really build up your managerial muscles and all that stuff around you know, helping other in their, others in their mental health journeys, then all of a sudden you, you're thinking, I, I should be better at this. So I think there's a real challenge across all those different cohorts. Mm. And it's important because of the report found that uh, it wasn't necessarily a majority, but I think plurality of people would go to their managers first with the mental wellness concern. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But yeah. managers are not being trained specifically on this necessarily. Well, uh, I mean, there know. is there is some, I mean, I've seen there's, um, you know, good good um, initiatives around the industry happening for sure. But mm. we've, we've, I mean, the data pretty much says that 61% of the people we sampled perceive that their direct manager is overwhelmed mm. and maybe not in a position where they, you know, are completely competent or got capacity. So I think I think some of this is about capacity and some of it's about competence. So I think some of it is about more intentional training and not relying on osmosis because I don't think we can anymore, partly because of hybrid, but partly because actually there's just, you know, the repertoire of things that you need to get competent are has widened. You know, I think probably, you know, you used to have the checklist of entry level to management, which is like you have to be able to conduct an appraisal and give some difficult feedback and have to motivate people. But now you've got to be able to think about inclusive cultures and when you've got more diverse voices, how you create more belonging you know and how you know that's that's just a tougher challenge that's just harder I mean you know lazily to a certain extent 20 years ago you could possibly just rely on taking your team to the pub which you know is kind of you know no longer the kind of answer to all cultural development challenges but I mean it never was I'm, I'm been slightly flippant but you know the reality is I think those are those, there's some competence we need to increase but we got to allow people the capacity as well. Someone really senior said to me just a couple of weeks ago, this wasn't in the survey, but they just said to me that they'd had a look back through their job description as a result of hearing um, the survey results and had noticed how few of their kind of top level responsibilities were actually about things like creating an environment for others to thrive and making sure that the culture was enabling of inclusivity and, you know, mental wellness, et cetera. Mm. And just how much of what we've all got in our job descriptions are really just about the task and the output and the KPIs related to performance, which we all know people is an enormous part of facilitating, but not maybe as explicitly as we should having that documented as a priority and a, and a you know, at least half your job, really, I suppose, if you've if you've got people responsibility, mm. Mm. the leadership uh, for those people and responsibility for those people. Um, you know, uh, James, you mentioned the pandemic, and, and and I do want to talk about that. I mean, I think the question for me, um, as someone that I was still actually at university during the pandemic, so I'm uh, you know a bit younger, bit newer, a part of this younger cohort. I'm curious how much has actually changed since the since the pandemic in terms of mental wellness versus uh, um, has it always been kind of like that? I mean, it's a stressful industry. Yeah. Uh, you know, media's always been, uh, and that's part of the fun in, yeah. in some ways, is that you're, you're constantly, things are constantly changing and evolving. But has have things really changed over the past oh, three or four I, years? I think so. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I popped out for a, a brief stint in the fresh air yesterday and I found myself crossing the road with someone similar age to me. We've kind of uh, had slight, you know, slight parallel careers and we were, I can't remember why we were saying, oh, it's just like the old days. I think we just had a couple of really intense things on and we were paying, preparing for a big presentation. I sort of joked, oh, it's just like the old, old days. And she said, yeah, but without the fun. And mm-hmm. I think that really made me, you know, obviously we had a bit of a laugh about that. But actually, I think what has changed is that it was cliched as it is. It's always been a work hard, play hard industry. So, you know, when I started, it was, yeah, you might have to work late and you might have to occasionally complete some stuff on the weekends but there's parties there's free drinks you know all, I mean when you're and when you're just out of university that's a massive thing and your salary is probably not going to be great wherever you start at the beginning and you never feel like it's enough anyway <laughs> so um I think fast forward to now um 
even if the work has stayed the same, which I don't think it has, I think it's intensified in, in many ways. And there's a lot more admin and a lot more kind of, um, a lot more complexity to it. The fun, which was the kind of release, the steam being let off the, you know, that release valve bit where you could all go and it was kind of down the pub. It did used to be, I sound really old now, but it really was, you know, let's go down the pub and, and kind of blow off some steam and then, right, let's do all this again tomorrow. And, that wasn't always the healthiest way. I don't think that was right, by the way. But it was it was a model that kind of largely got people mentally a lot of people through a lot of stuff. Um, I don't think it's right because obviously there was you know probably too much reliance on alcohol for lots of people, and that in turn has lots of other other negative effects. But um, I think it's it, it feels difficult to explain to younger people what it was like, and I find myself not particularly wanting to explain it. You know. Mm. As, as I say, I'm not sure it's what we want to be doing. We have to kind of reset and think about if we want to spend time together, because that's the bit that I think is missing, whether it's time together to collaborate on work stuff or time to just hang out and get to know each other and build a bit of trust and just actually enjoy each other's company. How you do that in a way that's inclusive, but also kind of gently leading is difficult because you say, right, let's all get together and let's, you know, work through some stuff and talk to each other and we'll feel better doing it. And then someone says, well, it doesn't really work for me. And you think, well, am I being inclusive and adapting by saying, okay, you can stay at home or am I doing everyone a disservice? So it's quite difficult to lead everyone through that. But I think in answer to your original question, it has changed quite a lot. And we're all the businesses at the moment, the last couple of months are really struggling with that fundamental question of how do you get everyone back in a productive way? You know, we've seen it with, Amazon and various various media whole codes have kind of laid down certain certain uh, edicts on it, and mm. I think that's that's you know that's not not written yet that story. It's still going, and we're all still kind of adapting and looking at the headlines and looking over the fence and going, what should we be doing? So I think that's a very live conversation now, um, and uh, yeah, mm. tricky one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nikki Kemp actually just wrote a, a column for us that went up uh, the day of this recording, uh, where she she ar- was arguing basically people forcing people back to the office, the new supervillain, uh, uh, which is certainly one uh, opinion, and and uh, I'm sure other people love to go into the office more, especially managers or, or you know property owners, <laughs> frankly. Um, James, you mentioned though that the the intensity of the job has has also increased, and, and Sue, I'm I'm curious, uh, where are we seeing the sort of keep pressure points because of an increase of intensity. Um, I know that you know pitching is probably one of them that was discussed in the report, and I'll, I'll ask you about that in a moment, James, but I wanted to see first, what was the sort of holistic view of what is what are these pressure points? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think it's, I don't think your listeners will be surprised by the fact that, you know, at times of high commercial pressure, when, um, you know, the real numbers and the, whether it's in a sales team, in a media owner, or whether it's, you know, related to pitches or winning new business, when those commercial pressures go up, the, you know, the, the intensity and the, you know, pressure on your own sense of coping, you know, is under pressure. Um, but also reorganisations, big transformation projects. I think there's some there's some organisational and company thing, company-wide things that I think are probably happening more and more frequently, because I think, you know, the pace of change generally for all of us is stepped up in the last five to 10 years. So, I don't know how often an average reorg or transformation project lands in every business in our sector, but I, I, my guess would be it's with more frequency than it was 10 years ago even. Um, so I think that need to be able to cope with those those ups and downs of, I guess, organisational transition points or high commercial pressure points we have to get better at coping with. But but also what the you know insight tells us is that, you know again, no big surprise, but people's own personal transition points in their life 
where their own pressure goes up. So, you know, I think we we, we recognise those things and the industry, I think, in the last five years has done some really strong work to talk more openly about these pressures, you know, and develop policies and initiatives from menopause for one part of, you know, our population and cohort to what it is like to have your first job in a bit more of a kind of clear way and a bit more of a hand-holding way to to make sure early careers, you know, land in the right way, especially if they're from more diverse backgrounds. So work that, you know, I know a lot of people in our sector have done with Brits finishing school um, to widen out um, our intakes. So I think I think we're we're better at having the conversation and recognizing the transition points and pressure points for people. Um, I think uh, the gap is that if you talk more and you launch more policies and initiatives, people's expectations go up. Mm. And then I think where we've got a gap and what the research showed us is that once you have more initiatives and more policies and you're talking about these issues more widely, which is clearly the right thing to do, if your day-to-day experience as someone in our um, industry is, you know, you just raise with your manager that you're feeling particularly stressed or you're not sleeping or you're overwhelmed or you're beginning to think it's having an impact on you and your work – and you don't get a response or listen to in a way that helps you feel supported, whether it's just 10 minutes of chat or whether it's signposting to HR or to NABs or whoever, then it doesn't matter how many policies and initiatives there are, you know, it almost makes it worse because the gap gets greater. So we've definitely got a gap between, I guess, policy and practice Mm. because we've raised expectations, rightly so, and that means we've made five years of progress, but we've got to embed them and make sure, I think, at a local level for all those people that you mentioned that... Fundamentally, their experience of work is to do with their boss, mostly. It's kind of the number one reason people leave if they're not getting on with their boss, um, not just in our industry. That's that's kind of in lots of sectors. So, you know, fundamentally day-to-day, if the person you initially go to or the person you initially look to for some element of support, signposting, a couple of minutes of listening, a couple of minutes of understanding where you are, doesn't respond in that way or know how to help you, then your experience is almost worse because you've heard about the initiatives and you've heard about the policies, you've heard everyone talk about it. Mm. And the reality on the ground for you day to day is no better. So we've got to close that gap. Yeah, I mean, I guess how how do you close that gap is the million dollar question. Because mm. it's, it's, it's great to identify that there is a gap, mm. but w- what kind of policy implementation is required in order for people to, to, to feel that initiatives are actually being followed through? Is it as simple as let's train up more management to make sure that they're better equipped? Or, I mean, what what other things uh, are really important? Well, I think it's about managing expectations. And I think lots of businesses do have annual surveys or take part in all in where they can show their results and 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 not over-promising because I think um, we definitely got this sense from some of the senior leaders that took part in a survey. And I mean, I, and I've heard people talk about this the last couple of years. This is hard stuff. You know, this is hard stuff to get good at. This is hard stuff to make sure you're constantly intentional around and to make sure, especially if you've got habits that are 20 year old in terms of how you lead and manage, you know, which, which I certainly have. Um, so I think it's hard. You have to be more intentional when you're, you know, it's like, it's like learning to drive a car. When you're learning to do something in a different way from what you've done before, you have to be, you know, really conscious of what you're up to. It takes longer, takes more energy, takes more, you know, you're longer at it, you're slower at it. So, and I think in a world where at one end we've just got more pressure and there's more to do and our to-do lists are just, you know, endless, and that is just life, um, you know, trying to find the capacity from an energy point of view, but also from a just sheer time point of view, you have to literally carve it out, I think, mm. um, and be highly intentional about things and not just default to, I'm sure if I catch them on the walk to the tube, I'll be able to talk to them or in the fortnightly or annual appraisal. I just, I, I think you've got to, you know, be trained in spotting the signs better as as people responsible for people. So I think we can do more in that space. And then I think manage people's expectations that we are on a, I hate the word journey, but we are in terms of opening up these conversations and being better at it. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight, but you, you've got to be allowed to 
people have got to know to flag if they're not getting the right support, I think. And it's not whistleblowing, that's too strong a term, I think. But I think if your own local manager doesn't know or doesn't respond appropriately, I think in most businesses you need somewhere else to go. Mm. Um, and maybe that's not always HR. Sometimes it's HR, but and it can also be NABs, but maybe it's mental health allies or some of those other initiatives that need ramping up maybe in more businesses. So, But I do think the crux is entry-level management and understanding and, and people around those people saying, look, your key, your key aspect of your job is, you know, you're not here to fathom out everyone's mental health issues. Of course you're not. You know, someone said to me the other day, it's triage, not treatment, isn't it, if you're a manager? And I said, yeah, that's a really smart way of thinking about it. But you are here to make sure the environment and if anyone is struggling, um, you're there to signpost or support or listen and, and know where to point them to get you know, the right level of support to help them come back and thrive mm. before it gets to a crisis. Because that's what, you know, that's what most of us are trying to do. Make sure, you know, we, we're, prevention is the most important thing, I think, in this space. Mm-hmm. James, I mean, do you, do you feel that it comes down to that sort of early level management? Yeah, I think people talk a lot about authenticity as a manager and as a as someone coming to work, which is a bit of a buzzword, which for long periods for me hasn't really meant much. But I think just an acknowledgement that this is messy stuff. And I think maybe that's some of what we've really lost over the last few years, which is, you know, if you see every, if you see somebody five days a week, you kind of see them warts and all. So you see them when they're hungover or tired or they've had a long weekend or they've been away or they feel refreshed or they've been to the gym. And now we're sort of seeing people two or three days a week. Plus when people, you know, are working away they're able to you know send a client report from a beach that sounds brilliant but everything's sort of become neatly packaged and compartmentalized so when you do a work thing you have to be neat and then as a result when people do come into work I think people don't bring their mess in with them and their sort of personal baggage and actually whilst of course that sounds great that sounds like a great idea being professional which I, of course I applaud, it also just means that it adds to the pressure to, for us all to perform our best selves because we're only do, having to do it two days a week. So let's dial up our professional dial to 10. Um, and I think, you know, to build on Sue's point, the expectation is therefore really, really high. So you kind of think, well, I must have a perfect appraisal and, you know, I must be able to have these conversations really well and, you know, sort of soft music playing in the background while I can't hear what's going on in this very sensitive conversation. But actually, these conversations are messy and it could be a two-minute conversation going, I, I, I get that you're in a bad place. Is there anything I can do? You might not need me. You know, triage, not treatment. All, all of that stuff is a really a lovely way of thinking about it. And I think we've just, a lot of people have got a bit of a fear of getting started. Um, so I think if we can get more people thinking about asking the question, having the, having the conversation, giving feedback, being ha- embracing the awkwardness in our business because it is messy, whether it's management or client conversations, it's kind of all the same thing to me, which is going, oh dear, that looks like it's a bit broken. And rather than running away and saying, oh, I didn't see that, you know, actually it's picking it up and going, hi, what can we do mm. uh, all together? And I think that's some of the stuff that um, that NABS is is really good at trying to signal with people and uh, as as a business and and as leaders, everyone needs to to just try and lean in a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was clear to me from reading the report, uh, as I mentioned, uh, that that pitching is uh, can be a significant drag on uh, mental health for some people. Just to quote one respondent, it said. When you are involved in a high-pressure client project, for example, a new business pitch, the behavior of the teams running these projects does not reflect mental well-being considerations. Um, 
you know, James, obviously you are highly involved in, in the pitch process. I have never done a pitch. Uh, I'm not, I've never been an employee <laughs> anywhere at an agency or anything like that. Can you explain to me actually what goes on and why it is so stressful? I know that especially at this time of year, there's probably lots of that going on, lots of business being, being moved uh, ahead of the Christmas period. I mean, what makes it so grueling? Yeah, sure. So it's, I guess you could probably do this as some kind of maths equation, but the the commercial pressure. So it's an opportunity to sometimes win something that could change the face of your business, right? And whether you're the tiniest exec to the the CEO, everyone kind of knows that to, to a greater or less degree. So, and it's a yes, no, you either win it or you don't win it. So uh, plus you get the, so the pressure's huge already because it's a, it's a knockout match ultimately. Um, and then of course you have the fact that it's a time uh, an intense time window could be anything between a month and a year. Usually it's a couple of months and it's performative. So often, even those various stages and there's written stuff and there's, you know, numbers being agreed and things negotiated, largely it's not a casual conversation. It's uh, a show at the mm. end of it, which does have a big impact on the final score usually. So all of those things together, plus the fact that clients don't pay for pitches. So for the five agencies or 10 agencies or three agencies who are doing those pitches, they're all doing it for free because of course there's a prize at the end of that, that process. Plus you have to, that was all being done in ultimately in inverted commas spare time because everyone is running their existing business. You can't hire resource for money that's not coming in. So they are an intense procedure, but they're also a lot of fun and you learn more on pitches than you learn in the day-to-day run of things. Plus, if you work in um, an agency, particularly a larger agency, you get to meet um, people that you wouldn't normally get to meet. Ultimately, you often get get to meet some of the best, the very best people you'll ever work with. So there's loads of great stuff to do to do with it. And I, I think back on every single pitch I've ever done. I've probably been pitching for about 15 years or so. Um, I was lucky, lucky enough to be, be be put on some sort of relatively early in, in my career. Um, and uh, yeah, it's I can I can understand why people think of them as pressured because they are right for all, for all those reasons. Um, but they're a fact of life in in our business. There is no alternative model that I'm aware of coming along. I think it's unlikely clients are going to all of a sudden start paying for pitches because if that that model got established, people would start coming in as everyone does in our capitalist society and says, well, we can do that for less Mm. uh, or for free. So I I can't really see that changing anytime soon, but I think it's really important that people uh, understand the kind of benefits of um, that adrenaline rush. And I guess what I would, I would call acute stress rather than chronic stress. So there's a huge difference between the butterflies in your stomach you feel when you're thinking, oh my God, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I really hope I don't mess it up to I can't get out of bed. I feel totally unmotivated. Nothing's changed over the last two months. They're completely different. And, um, and I'm sh- sure your listeners are, you know, have done all sorts of reading on, on, on those topics and stuff. So, um, I think it's, you know, it's rather than running away from pitches, it's more about understanding they are a brilliant thing. You have to learn to manage the stresses and strains that come with them, because ultimately if that's the kind of thing you want to do, and if it's the industry you want to work in, they're pretty tough to avoid. Right. What, what, what are the key pieces of advice that you tend to give in terms of managing that acute stress? Yeah. So uh, interestingly, like I think people tend to be either kind of quite naturally good at, at managing it themselves or they just tend not to throw themselves into the, the process. So I haven't actually, this is 
you know, haven't met that many people who've been on been on pitches and said, "I'm re- this is fantastic, but I'm I can't cope." Mm. I'm sure it happens, um, but I think people t- because it's sort of almost seen as a prize pitching, which is uh, clever how us advertising industry people spin something really hard as being worth winning, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but but I think because of that, then people sort of might maybe tend to stay quiet and say, oh, no, I'm fine, thanks. I'm, I don't, I know you, you want people to volunteer for pitches, but maybe I'll just kind of, you know, maybe not put my hand up for that one. So I think, um, but but if, if someone were to be in that situation and say, you know, I've got a day job and a pitch on, and I, I certainly remember being in that situation myself, we were doing a government pitch actually um, a few years back and our, our first child was really, really young and it was a Sunday and I wasn't even going to be in the pitch. And I was thinking, what am I doing here? Hmm. Um, and I just kind of, you know, took a deep breath and kept going until it was over. But but it didn't enjoy that one. And I didn't enjoy that one because I didn't I didn't really communicate with the person who was running the pitch. And I, I'm sure if I'd have said, look, do you know what? This isn't really working for me at the moment. I'll do what you need to do. But maybe there's a different way to do it so that I'm not, you know, missing my my young daughter's weekend. Then actually, that might have been a bit better. So I think I put I put on myself. I think the the the, the advice I would give to my younger self, if you like, was communicate better around it because there there are there are ways to do it. People slog their guts out on bits of pitch work, which, to be candid, aren't always that good. And you, there's almost like this machismo around well, it's pitch work, so it must be hard. So it must be more of my spare time. And therefore, I'll do all of that, and I'll feel amazing at the end of it. And you see it, and you kind of go, "Well, that wasn't really worth it. We probably only needed an hour's work, and we could have done it at lunchtime." So I think there's kind of a toxic culture can build up around pitching if you're not careful. It doesn't have to be, you know, you sitting there at six a.m. or having coffee at three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's a really good point in there, isn't there, about you know, acute and chronic stress, and how we have to also, I think, manage expectations and communicate well in all sorts of pressurised environments about what's going to be expected and people to watch the signs of whether they think their stress has turned from good stress to bad stress. I mean, the reality is that we've all had a, the odd sleepless night about something that we were excited stroke stressed about, you know, so... Uh, but I think recognising and understanding what more kind of chronic bad stress looks like is really important because, you know, th- there's a very fine line for every individual between exciting, um, really positive. I threw myself into something. I stretched myself. Yes, it, you know, it played on my mind and I didn't find it completely comfortable and getting better at something and and therefore becoming more competent. And then someone who, you know, really over time has done too many of those situations where it's playing on their long-term mental health and they they're probably in the wrong job or they need to be doing something else in terms of getting support or ways to cope mm. so i think it's a, it's a really good point to you know just we just have to have the conversations about these things i think because it's it's you know i didn't know this stuff 15 years ago mm. and you change as an individual as well so you're not exactly the same as you were 15 years ago you know your own pressure points and your own responses to stress i think change so i think it's just part of the ongoing conversation about recognizing things um and being a bit more aware of when it might be tipping into something that's unhelpful Mm. I was reminded, uh, James, when you were sort of describing the process of there's that really famous scene from Mad Men, which I always come back to this because, again, I haven't actually been in a a media creative agency ever in my life where they're, I think they're going through some sort of creative pitch and Peggy's staying really late. They're all staying really late. They're all stressed out. The boss is being a dick because that's his character. (laughs) And 
basically expresses that I never get a thank you for all the work that I'm doing. And he's just like, well, that's what the money's for. You get paid for this. Um, is there a lot of resistance from management today? I mean, I know that was supposed to take place in the 60s, but it, <laughs> is is there is there some of that still today? And especially when you mention the sort of the fact that you're not getting paid for the pitch process, how much how much of an issue does is it just coming down to money and people feeling stressed, especially amid a cost of living crisis? Of well, look, I'm doing really stressful work, and I don't feel like I'm even getting paid enough, let alone getting maybe thanked or something. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, and again, I, it does feel different now, and I can't work out how much of that is my perspective having changed because I'm now older and and in a leadership position. You unfortunately just kind of see more more of the stuff that's going wrong <laughs> because that's the nature of escalation and, and fixing stuff. You know, I wasn't in charge of getting a group of people to go and do a pitch 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. The fact that I would have been, yes, please, you know, as like a little keen bean is neither here nor there. I wouldn't have seen the people who all said no. So maybe it's maybe it's always been a little bit like this, but I do think there's been a, a slight change of, of wanting to make that kind of sacrifice. There's lots of things that have changed in the kind of, economic environment in terms of home home ownership and what we're really working for and work-life balance even before the pandemic like all of those things were going on so I think it's very different when you're thinking okay well this this might get us closer to saving for our deposit so I will go for that promotion and to get that promotion maybe I need to be on a pitch you know there's a sort of not very many leaps to, to seeing that um I think that's just a bit different now and people accept you know, it might be, I've had these conversations with people saying, look, I've accepted I'm never going to own a home. So actually the way I earn money and work is is different to people of your generation. I've sort of had people kind of point that at me a bit. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's tougher. And it, every time a pitch comes along, I do go and have the conversation with people of, you know, are you on board with this? It's going to be exciting. It's going to be hard work, but it's going to be fun. We're going to learn some stuff. Um, as I say, you either get people who want to do it or you get people who don't want to do it. The challenge is when you get you get so many people who don't want to do it. They're like, we haven't really got anyone to do it, <laughs> which does happen. Um, and again, I think there's always been a little element of that because some people, we all come to work for different reasons and expecting everyone to be the same is unreasonable. But likewise, it's a different kind of work. I think that's that's the thing. So some people are great at, at that standing up showman bit. Some people will sit there and churn through 50 spreadsheets that all need to be done in order for these pitches to be won. Um, but I think unfairly as a kind of, uh, I would maybe characterize us as a bit of an industry of like extroverts and show offs from time to time. I think it's a bit unfair that that gets rewarded over the kind of slightly more, um, quieter work that's just as just as vital i think there was another one that relates a bit to one of the other key findings from our consultation which was which i think is a really important thing to remember especially when you are in a leadership leadership position and you do have more of a platform is that we were surprised by the fact that what we defined as early careers so i guess you know five years and under people who've either joined in the pandemic or since to our industry Although we had a hypothesis as we went into this that they that that group was probably much more comfortable talking about mental health and mental wellness than potentially someone who'd you know, been in the industry 20, 25 years. Um, and actually, we found it quite hard to recruit for those um, early careers to the groups and to the depths that we did. And when we got into why that was, it, it was because despite the fact that those early careers might be more you know cognizant of mental health, um, and talk about it in their peer groups, they definitely weren't happier to talk about it in a work context. Mm. Um, so there was some reticence to even be recruited into the consultation from people who perceived that that could be damaging to their career. So I think it's really important to remember, because I think from my perspective, we did go in the hypothesis where I thought, oh gosh, you know, 
that generation are going to be much more cognizant. I was thinking about my kids and thinking about everything we know about, you know, mental health in the under 25s. And I was thinking they're going to be much more up for this chat. And they are in the broad sense, socially and culturally, but not in their own work and not about their own, with their own boss or with their own organisation. So I think you have to remember that when, you know, we think and we have opened up the conversation on mental health and lots of senior people have been talking more publicly and be more vulnerable at some of their own challenges, which is brilliant and definitely a move on from 10 years ago, as I said before. But that doesn't mean the people with the least power in our organisations are any more likely to talk about it than they were. In fact, um, you know, there might be some evidence to say that, that you know, they're, they're at least, you know, they're, they're less likely to a certain extent because, you know, expectations have been raised and they, they see it as something that is perceived as, you know, being detrimental to careers or linking to how people see their performance. And I understand that completely. Um, so we've got a long way to go in making sure we open up the conversation and make sure genuinely there are safe spaces for people to talk, either in their organ organisations, hopefully, ultimately, with your own boss, and this can be a free conversation, but if not, with, you know, pl- other places where you feel safe to talk about it, which one of those places is obviously NAPS, which mm. we're keen to promote. Mm. Uh, it reminds me of another part of the report, which was this sort of uh, lived experience gap as opposed to a necessary generational yeah. gap, as you're sort of alluding to. Um, so can you explain a little bit about what you mean by a lived experience gap that has to do with you know background, uh, personal experience, sexual orientation, ethnic background, that type of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we came into this um, consultation with lots and lots of great data on which it was based, which is why we went for a deep dive rather than a sort of huge sample, because the ad associations all in census, which, as you know, gets done, has been done twice, gives us this huge, enormous sample, 19,000 people. Um, And we know from that that 12% of people in our industry define themselves as having a chronic mental health condition and over a third uh, identified in the last survey as feeling, you know, they were suffering from stress or overwhelm to the point that was impacting them at work. Because that's, you know, one in three to identify as that. And then within certain communities, when you break the data down, like LGBTQ+, um, those who are less able-bodied, and, and the younger cohort were over are over indexing again. So we do know that certain communities either are self-reporting that they're suffering or are, are feeling like, you know, that, and that's the same cohorts that in our survey, uh, when we did the deeper dive as to why, have got the least power. So therefore mm. are feeling the least, you know, the most reluctant to stick their hand up and say they need help. So, you know, they're suffering the most and they're the least likely to say they need help. So, you know, that's that's a disconnect. We went in thinking that would be, with a hypothesis that that would be particularly um, true on a generational life stage point of view. And actually, we didn't find that. What we found is that when you talk to, we defined them as early careers, we had middle management, and we had senior leadership people in all these conversations broadly. And then we, we worked with MIFA on making sure we had um, uh, a more diverse cohort included in the survey. Uh, and the groups. And then we also, you know, made sure we had to, we had to up recruit for the early careers because, as I said, they were a bit reluctant to take part at first. Um, and that in itself was a really interesting finding. Mm. Um, but we we essentially ended up saying, well, actually, it's not to, everyone's got the same expectations of work and wishes of work. You know, people want clear boundaries between work and home. People want there to be safe spaces to have conversations. People, you know, feel the same sorts of pressures. Um, so there isn't really a generational gap, but there is a lived experience gap. You know, what, what you've been through and what you're currently going through does make a difference in terms of um, how likely to you're, you're, you are to report that you're either suffering from, you know, a, a chronic mental health condition or feeling so stressed or overwhelmed that it's really impacting your life and work. So, 
It's not mm. necessarily generations, but there are some groups over index that we need to pay more attention to, and they tend to have the least power. Hence my point about making sure we're creating spaces for all voices to be heard. In terms of you know tangible steps to take, I mean, is it is it similar to the the broader step about you know better management, or, or it, it's it a broader issue of maybe we need more people uh, from those backgrounds that are stepping into leadership roles and are being put in those types of positions where they have more power and they can uh, uh, you know help out members within their sort of sub community within an organization. It's a Unfortunate answer, but there's no silver bullet to these things, as we all yeah. know. We all know it's a slow, long slog to embed different ways of operating, I think, and, and that you've got to just continuously review, uh, have conversations around, talk about how you're marking progress, talk about what your surveys or your data is telling you about whether you're moving forward fast enough or not. And and every organisation, I guess, has their own way of doing that. And a lot of them is for it is all in for a lot of them, actually, the bigger organisations in our sector, which is brilliant because it means, you know, every two years we get this big sense of whether we're moving or not. But, you know, the individual markers, I guess, in your own organisations are what you have to pay attention to. And um, that that really is about, you know, show, don't tell, I think, which, you know, we all know is a fundamental principle in marketing. But, you know, when we try to, when we think about, you know, briefs we work on or clients we work on, I think show, don't tell is fundamental to what we do. But then in our industry, we have a bit of tell, you know, we, we talk about things before we've done them sometimes. And I think that's where you get this expectation gap. So you just got to, you know, show the work, show the work, make the progress, mark your homework, you know, correct it when it's wrong. And then, make sure there's spaces for the people who might be, you know, finding with, with their team or with their boss or with their manager, they don't feel they can have the conversation, that there is definitely some other space where they can have that conversation. Because it takes time to, you know, as you say, you know, all those more diverse voices that are in our industry, for them to become, you know, our next generation of senior leaders, which over time will change, hopefully, if we keep all those people. But, you know, we can't wait 10 years. We've got, to, we've got to do stuff now, but, you know, also mark our homework and be self-critical, I guess, where we think we can ramp it up. So for me, as NABs, that is me going, if seven out of 10 of the things that people want, we've got, but we've got a visibility gap, then boy, do I need to get on making sure our industry knows more of what we've got to offer. And what's the 30% we're not doing? Right. What are the three things next year NABs can do that meets the, you know, the areas for support that people don't think this industry provides us yet? And one of them is definitely, I think, leaning into preparing people for management better in terms of, not the hard skills, I hate the word soft skills, but more of the kind of mindset stuff that you have to understand is your responsibility once you step into the arena of being responsible for others and creating culture and environment where people can do their best work. Mm. I've got just one last question for each of you. James, I'll start with you. Uh, I, I should have mentioned at the start, actually, you're you're relatively new at Assembly. So I am, yes. First of all, congrats. Thanks. Um, second of all, the, the main question I want to ask both of you is, is uh, what makes you passionate about media, especially you know if you just change jobs this time of year, as we mentioned, can be quite challenging, and hopefully that I mean I think you, you've alluded to the fact that can be quite fun as well. But if you could sort of boil it down into what makes you so passionate about working in this industry, yeah, I'll give a slightly cheeky answer, which is that I think NABs Fast Forward, of which as you mentioned at the start, I'm very lucky to be the chair of is actually a microcosm of all the stuff I really enjoy about our job. So it's a bit hackneyed to say, you know, whenever things are getting a bit intense in our business, in any agency I've worked in over the last 20 years, people say, look, no one died. We're not saving lives. Hmm. I did once work on some government campaigns where someone said, we are actually saving lives. So that was quite, <laughs> meant I couldn't say that. 
But uh, when we get together once a year to do NABs Fast Forward, which is all about teamwork and collaboration, leaning into what some the person next to you is doing, understanding the brief, communicating with the client, taking it apart in your mind, trying to solve lo- loads of problems, and then turning that into something which is could be beautiful to look at, but also really has an effect on people's behaviour. Normally, that's what we brief people around is a behaviour change brief. That is, it's incredible to see what people come up with. Every single year, we get eight incredible 10-minute presentations where you think, wow, these people were, you know, six weeks ago saying, can't do it, can't do it, we'll never get there. Um, and that's the stuff I love because also personally, I, I entered the course as a mentor eight years ago, is I got into it because I just said, have you got anything going where I can do some mentoring or some or, or some help? And then the next day I got a call going, yes, come in. Um, it was right <laughs> right in the middle of a course. So um, that, that ability to help each other out, I think, is something that's actually very rich within our industry. We don't talk about it enough. We don't champion it enough. Obviously, ho- hopefully, um, you know, listeners to this uh, will be will be kind of keen on that. But I think that's that's the stuff that gets me really excited because you know, we are uh, actually an open, creative, fun, energetic industry. And we do look out for each other and we do want to make good stuff at the end of the day, whether that's a a media plan or a TV ad or a piece of influencer content or whatever it might be. So in a microcosm of of the NABS Fast Forward course, that's all the stuff I love. Mm. Sue, you get the the last word. Yeah, I mean, similar, but more general, I think. My response is that, you know, this industry at its best and lots of people in our consultation recognise this, by the way, because so, you know, lots of people said, you know, when I'm at my best, when I'm feeling top of my game, when I love this industry, it's when I can be my most authentic, my most creative and my most collaborative. And those three things all require us to be as mentally fit as we all can be, I think. Um, and so I think we work in an industry which is, you know, at the forefront of intentionally looking to become better all the time. I think we get hit with advances fast in our sector because we embrace change quick, social, cultural, technological stuff all hits us first. Um, And our intention is always to do the best by our people and for the work. So I think our industry is full of people who want to do better uh, and want to solve some of the problems that we see on a day-to-day level. So I feel very positive that, you know, in this area of advancing mental wellness, you know, we have lots and lots and lots of people who care about it and we'll lean into doing it we just got to be honest about the whole you know saying it and doing it and embedding it and being long-term about it and correcting ourselves um is what we have to be frank about and just hold our hands up and say we're not going fast enough or we need to pivot or we need to do this better so for me that is our industry's biggest strength and yeah i saw a stat the other day that said something like in all work uh, it was a guy from harvard business school who said something like all work rob cross you know is now 52 percent of our time is on highly collaborative work um, and it's going up and up all the time. So how do we maintain that spirit of collaboration when work is changing and it's getting harder to do it? Have we got the tools, the practices, the skills, the competence to exploit that and do that well uh, and make sure we all keep us mentally well within that process and have a great, enjoyable time while we're doing it? So, yeah, that's it. That was very, <laughs> that was very short at all. It was very long. It was it was a great answer. I, I well, I really appreciate you guys coming out and chatting with me. It's obviously a very important topic, important for us, for our readership, and also for everyone in the industry. So, uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.
Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.